0: Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones is not a thing to celebrate, but it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and other delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Everyone, welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope the show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in this extraordinary world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming David Walton to the show. David is a professional television, film, and stage actor. You've seen him on shows like New Girl, 9JKL, Masters of Sex, About a Boy, and Perfect Couples. In films like Bad Moms and Netflix's Happy Anniversary, Maybe two, you've seen a movie called Fired Up where I played buddies with Eric Christian Olsen and David played the iconic and gut-bustingly funny villain, Dr. Rick. He's also got a new pilot he executive produced and starred in called Awokened and you can find its very funny trailer on his Instagram page. And he's got a run going in NBC's Council of Dads this season which you can go and check out right now. Today, David lives with his wife and children in Maine, and I'm thrilled to have him on the phone so we can catch up about all this stuff and other stuff that's even more meaningful than this stuff. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Nick. Oh, buddy, you're giving it back to me. I've been into this habit where I, I feel like I've got to be screaming at like 200 people in a crowd.
1: Welcome no, no, to the show,
0: it. David. It's I think I love
1: it. I, you get you bring the heat right out of the gate. I'm very
0: into it. Oh good. That makes me happy. But sometimes I am like, God, I'm just I'm just sitting alone. <laughs> I'm just sitting alone in a room. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm alone. Right now, I'm alone in our kid's playroom that looks like a tornado just ripped through it. But it's the only place that's quiet in my house at the moment, so here we are.
0: Buddy, okay, there's so many things I want to talk about, but I got to plug a couple of other things. For those of you that are into going to Instagram and checking out funny stuff, David has a really funny Instagram. And one of the few things that he's got going on there, in addition to the Awokened stuff that I already plugged, he's got this new business where he's selling robes like luxurious robes. You're going to have to tell me about exactly how luxurious, but they're called Wakanichi Robes. And he's got these commercials where oftentimes he's uh, totally naked. And then there's like like maybe a butt shot or something like that. It's really funny. How did you get started with making a robe company, man?
1: It was about two years ago. And it's one of those things, like a lot of projects, you have this little idea and you're like, well, what's that first step? And my two very close friends and I, business partners, were like, You know, robes, they kind of suck for men. They're all unisex. You check into the hotel with your wife and hers looks great. And then you're tying the robe around your breasts. It (laughs) (laughs) doesn't work. So we decided to upgrade a forgotten essential for men. And it turned out really well. It was a labor of love. It was a lot of, you know, R&D. But we made this robe we're really proud of. And now we get to sell bathrobes, which is inherently humorous. Yes, Um, yes. But I also believe very much in the power of the robe. Like for me, when I put it on, something happens to my body and I just like decide not to do as much or not to you know, worry and stress as much. So that's sort of what we're selling it as: is uh, remember that a robe is, is a way into being more present and grounded when you're at home. And that's really our whole pitch. And we just launched it and uh, it's going really well.
0: Well, that's great, man. And it does, I have to say, I had a moment of yearning for a more relaxed and peaceful time at home. I mean, I heard that and I was like, am I relaxed enough in the clothing I wear in my house? And I, well, I know. Well, Nick, yeah. Nick,
1: you need to wrap yourself in the softest 100% cotton terry on the market. Right?
0: <laughs> God, so damn good. I mean, I always knew that I was doing this show for myself, but sometimes I just don't know how much I'm doing it for myself. That's what's coming out of this episode today is a more relaxed and peaceful time at home with my family. And I look forward to it. That's all we want. David, another thing that I have to talk about is you and I did not meet on Fired Up. You and I, no. and actually, funny enough, Jake Sandvig, who's kind of a side to this, but another thing from my perspective was really interesting. Both Jake and you and I were all cast in a pilot called Cracking Up back when I was just 22 fresh. I had just landed in Los Angeles, and I'm almost positive you had too, right?
1: Yeah, I'd never really seen a movie camera. I'd never been on a set.
0: Yeah, I had done election back when I was younger, but I had moved out after college. And you and I, it was an extraordinary experience. And I don't know if you've had another experience like this since. I don't think I have. You and I went in to play best friends. Best friend. And neither of us had any other actors there competing for those roles. And it was a really big pilot that year. It was a pilot that had Molly Shannon and Christopher McDonald and Mike White and the Whites brothers were all in the executive producer chairs. It's very early uh because like I said I was it was the first pilot I ever did and it's a kind of a brutal story from my perspective. The show was was a really fun shooting process in the pilot and the show went to series and I did not go with it to series. I was playing the lead in the show. I was the sort of straight man amidst a family of crazies. And I was replaced by Jason Schwartzman, which no fault. I mean, Jason Schwartzman, significantly bigger name than me as an absolute nobody at the time. But I'm bringing this up now, one, because it's totally poignant to when you and I met and wanted to talk to you about what you remember about that experience. But also, I think this is just one of those moments where it's therapeutic for me to talk about the times in my life that were not happy times. I mean, that was a brutal uh, education for me in this business. It was a tough nine months after that. And those things do tend to define a person. You come to kind of love, I have come to love the experience because it educated me in so many ways. But it's an opportunity for me to tell you and to sort of come clean about this sort of vulnerable place that I sometimes have had a hard time really even addressing in my career. It's really funny, especially I was so young. And I think that's why, When I tell you about it, now I'm referencing all those things. Did we just meet that day when we were testing?
1: Yeah, it was so weird. I mean, I think about it now, I think things have gotten clearly much more competitive. Like what huge network pilot is casting a couple of known names who've like never really been in front of a camera? I don't think that happens anymore. No. It was 2003. And I remember, I mean, I got a holding deal when I did a play in New York and got flown out and I was in a town car being driven to auditions and I remember going to the cracking up one and we had our little chemistry test and Mike White was like yeah I mean Gail Berman who was head of Fox at the time was like yeah she likes you guys like let's do it and I I just you know there's no context for you and I at that age I mean we're just sort of like oh this is what the entertainment industry is we're excited obviously we're going to make like you know, league minimum. I think I was making twenty thousand dollars an episode, and you probably making more because you were the lead. But you know, when you're waiting tables, that's crazy. Oh, it's and, insane!
0: Oh, money. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was.
1: It was and, mind and I remember shattering. you and I just, just being around town and like going out to dinner and being like, "Wow, look at us!" And then, you know, I have to say, I, I haven't thought about it in so long. I had a weird come full circle where I'm doing. I did a pilot, or I haven't done it. Got sent home because of the pandemic, but. Gail Berman is producing it. And it was like this moment where years later, I was with the woman who gave me my first break oh, wow. and doing another Fox pilot. This is all to say, Nick, that I honestly, as you talk, I like feel a level of guilt because I think I, maybe I called you and said, man, that sucks. But like, I don't think I had the context of how absolutely backbreaking that is at any point Point in anyone's career, and, and by the way, for the listeners, it happens all the time. It's no consolation, but it is really heartbreaking. And I just want to say, fourteen years later, that I'm <laughs> that I'm sorry. That I'm, oh, and man,
0: I'm buddy, sorry there's no guilt here. for you, man. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate, I understand the emotional. I understand the emotional pull. It's a totally unwinnable situation coming out of that emotionally scot-free for anybody. Yeah. You went on as a cast and worked with Jason, who everything I've ever heard is he's a lovely person. You know, and I went on and started my career. So this ends in a happy place, I will say, because we get to do Fired Up together. But yeah, man, no, it was, it's good to talk about these things because, and I'm not the only one to do it. Lots of people do it. And in fact, Enver, who you and I were just talking about because you listened to his show, Enver was on my show, On this podcast a few episodes ago, it's a guy who talks very candidly about the business. If anybody's listening and wants to hear about what it's like to be an actor in this business in a really candid way, Enver really talks about it. It's healing in some ways to talk about these things. It's amazing in some ways to have... Distance, it's the kind of stuff I got from the people that were older and mentor-like figures when I was younger that said, you know, wait until you get married and you have kids, this business changes. Yeah. All those things are kind of wrapped into what it's like to look back on those experiences as a very green and naive 22-year-old.
1: Yeah. I remember running into you. You were using the pain of that. And I remember you were you had enrolled in an acting class. I think it was Meisner or something like that. But I remember you basically took action like, okay, maybe, you know, I didn't have what it takes to hold that job or whether it was my fault or not is inconsequential, but you used the pain of it as fuel to work on your craft. And I remember that conversation pretty vividly. And like, you were very excited about the class you were taking and you thought it was helping you book and really like relaunch your career, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, man, for sure. Again, looking back on it, I... I don't know if there's anything I could have done different to keep the no, job. But certainly, certainly I had the, as anybody does in this business or in any business, I think, I think anybody with any job, when you lose it, you ask yourself, is there something I could have done? I can tell <laughs> you I was, I can tell you I was very naive. Ultimately, what I guess I want to close with before we get to you and talking more about your story is, I was in some ways, I mean, I know I was not in, inexperienced and it was a lot. Although I feel like I did a good job, I do remember being very nervous outside of it, going, "Oh boy, like this is these are some pretty big people, and I'm in the center of this all the time. Am I doing a good job? And those types of things are what you have to get out of your brain to perform correctly. Yeah. and And I uh, was able to do that. And you're right, that you remember uh, that conversation is very cool. I did do Meisner, and that is the thing that I studied for many years, and continue to go back and do Meisner when it's time to to go back and clean up and and get back to yeah. my roots. So
1: the final chapter of that is that the show went nowhere. If you can't even see it anywhere <laughs> yeah. and it was, we got Reduced from thirteen to eleven episodes, and there's I've never been approached ever by anyone saying, "Hey, I really liked you."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's a bit, that's the other part of this business. Things that just feel like absolute mountains in my memory, or did for a long time. It farts in the wind. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> so true, man. All right, David. um, I always do this. We don't really have to do this. We've killed a lot of time already. But what do you? What did you have for breakfast this morning?
1: Uh, I switched it up today. I got a shipment of Bulletproof coffees. I'll plug my friend Dave Asprey. His uh, company, Bulletproof, has a great uh, pre-made kind of MCT oil coffee that I ingested first thing in the morning, and that got me going until about 1130. So yeah, I drank some coffee with butter and MCT oil on it.
0: Uh, you, the coffee has butter in it?
1: Yeah, it's uh, that's the thing. It's like you basically drink a lot of fat in the morning with your caffeine, and it makes the caffeine ride out and you don't get hungry. Wow. Yeah, give it a shot. You okay. may get diarrhea, but yeah, keep stick with it.
0: I mean, I get, I mean, I was <laughs> essentially giving myself diarrhea every morning anyway from just drinking too much coffee. All right, man. How and when were you introduced to the
1: idea of God in your life? Um. So, I was an acolyte. I grew up in the suburb of Boston. Uh, I was an acolyte at the Church of Redeemer. I will say that it was all perfunctory, you know, I was just a terrified, I had to walk down the aisle for the gospel and land at the seventh pew after the third stanza of the hymn. I'd just be so nervous. You know, it was all that thing. I come from a large family and, and really I was just going through the motions. I became confirmed in that tradition where you go to class and they teach you about the Bible. It all went in one ear and out the other. I will say the first time I actually thought about God, I would say responsibly, was in early college where I was going to, you know, we would be like sort of a Christmas Easter type Protestant or Episcopalians. And I just was like, why am I saying the Nicene Creed? Why am I saying any of this? I don't I don't believe it. So why am I saying it? So I just sort of stopped saying it. And then I told my mom and she was like, well, maybe you should talk to the minister and talk about why you're not, you know, what it is that you're resisting. Oh, I should also say that the girl, (laughs) the the girl that my first girlfriend and like, you know, we lost her virginity to each other. After we left high school, she became a born again Christian, and I think renounced her losing of her virginity. Oh, wow. It was like. Yeah. So you've been I renounced. Like, yeah, like <laughs> I, I had that feather in my cap, and now I don't. No, but I, I remember. <laughs> right.
0: She gave you your virginity back too. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but I, um, I actually talked to her because at I, I, that point I, I was generally that was my first kind of like questioning of what the hell is going on in this world. And uh, anyway, I talked. So to So well, hold on, though. I'm I, sorry,
0: I missed something on the timeline. She left high school and then became a born again. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, she. I think freshman year at Harvard.
0: And so at freshman year, so nineteen or so, you talked to her. Is yeah, that what time you're at right now? You called her when you yeah. were a freshman, also.
1: Yeah, yeah, around nineteen. Okay, we started. I just said, hey, you know what is it? I was always jealous. I would say this. I became jealous of people with face. Hmm. Like I was like, what a nice feeling that would be, and I sort of started wondering how uh, to acquire it, etc. So I asked her about it, and I remember actually she said something like, you know, if you just ask for it, you can just ask God, like, help me find you kind of thing. Right. And um, I did that, but then I really didn't think much about it after that point. You know, I got caught up in, I would say, normal college behavior, kind of frat, meatheady. I went to Brown, but, it, you know, there's meatheads everywhere, and I, I wasn't necessarily a meathead, but I was, I was into you know excessive drinking and and really just having as much fun as possible and that my questioning kind of went out the window but it's always been there and now you know i'm 41 and kind of having a, a re-emergence of that questioning
0: well that's wonderful that's a beautiful place to take this and you know what man i think we're at our first break that feels like actually a really nice jumping off point so Great. let's take our first break and we'll jump off right from that when we come back Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners. And it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with David and he just kind of left us at a beautiful spot. It seems like you're re-engaging with something in a really direct way right now regarding your spirituality, David. So... If you wouldn't mind, just kind yeah. of start with where that begins for
1: you. Well, it's very strange that you reached out for me to do this podcast, honestly, Nick. And I'll tell you a little story. I I moved to Maine uh, almost a year ago in June. And we had a really tough time leaving LA. So it was hard to sell our house. And it's a lot to move your family and to uproot from a place you've lived 14 years. So, it was, And then I was in a place trying to, you know, have a career and maintain the career, but living, you know, kind of in the boonies of uh, Southern Maine. So I was struggling. I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was unhappy. I was just sort of in a permanent state of, I call it sweet melancholy. Mm. And Maine is so beautiful, but it's, you know, in June here, where I am is a summer community, and there's not a lot of people here in June. So I was alone a lot. And I was always taking walks. And I was kind of, just questioning, like, what am I doing here? I don't have a job. I don't know how to make money. You know, I can wait around for acting work or whatever, which is what we do, but what how can I be more proactive? And I was walking down the beach on a spitting, like 40 degree day, just nasty, but it was I love I kind of love that weather. And I just kind of got hit by something and I just started bawling. And I hmm. remember feeling like you know, I was here to find God. I didn't know what, I actually am uncomfortable saying God. I was like, I'm so uncomfortable with all the accoutrement of spirituality and the change in tone of voice and the preciousness and all this stuff. But, you know, I was like, how do I have another word for God? I'll just call it, reverse it and call it dog. <laughs> but I sort of <laughs> felt like, I, I felt like I got hit by something. And I actually, the book, which I think is amazing, William Blake's uh, Varieties of Religious Experiences. I I was reading that at the time, and I just sort of felt like maybe what I was here to do was to find God in Maine. And I thought of this idea of, like, what if I went around with a bunch of audio equipment, and if the old sayings, which is basically across every religion, that that sort of God is in everything— that God is in every human you see and every plant and animal and anything you see that God is within it, well, maybe it would be fun to go around with recording equipment and sort of find God in everybody and just start talking to random strangers. So I really had this, I got all excited about this idea for a podcast where I went around and talked to people, (laughs) random strangers. And then I got an email from you being like, I have this podcast. It was like the same day I was buying the equipment. And I remember being like, damn, fucking Nick's doing it. And i like, <laughs> gotta I'm be weird, fucking kidding me. I'm not. And I had this weird feeling of like, not like, yeah, a little bit of envy and a little bit of like the wind taken out of my sails. Like, ah. Oh. And I actually resisted listening to you because I was like, I just didn't want, you know, I didn't want to be influenced or feel like, My idea was already being done. So I thought it was so kind of cool that you reached out for me and that allowed me to get over my BS and actually listen to the beautiful thing you're making here. And I don't know, we're here now. And I guess that's a segue into telling you what's happened since then. Well,
0: I do want to hear that, but I have to say, first of all, I just so appreciate you sharing that. Fucking Amy. Yeah. You know, man... It's so crazy. Life is so fucking hard sometimes. It's so beautiful. This is why I do this fucking show. It's because yeah. you get an opportunity for people to really... I honestly, David, as you as you were talking, like I experienced a grounding as I sat here with you in this conversation. Yeah. I don't know if I sound different, but I feel different as I'm talking to you right now. Like a door that I didn't know that we needed to open, opened. And the reason is because it's so easy to feel envy. It's so easy to feel jealousy. And like, just in a total disclaimer, man, I've had a tough last couple of years. It's been hard for a couple of reasons, you know, personal reasons dealing with just like uh, certain things I can't even talk about, honestly. But then, you know, because they're too personal. But like- Mm -hmm some of them can be more generalized and just talk about becoming a father. I have a three and a half year old son and the difficulties and challenges of that, not working as much as I want to work. The show came out of a time where I wasn't working and I was trying to find, I had this, this thing I've had this gnawing desire to talk in this way, in a way that it sounds like you were hit with this. Yeah. And to hear you kind of say, it's an absolute fool's game to look at other people that are working and say, oh man, I wish I was on that show or whatever. But it's easy to feel envy when somebody else is working. And then here you are explaining like, not that it's killing you or anything, and it's not killing me, but you see something and you're going, oh, it, it hits you in a vulnerable place. Nick is doing something. Yeah. I think particularly in our business, because we're all just such emotional people anyway, and we're always so vulnerable, it's sometimes it's hard to let your guard down and really share with someone that, you know, you're struggling or whatever. Even just you to just even say like look for it for a moment. I was like a little. It's amazing because I feel that envy too in different ways, and I could say I feel it about you and the work you're doing and the show that you've got going. and And it's not healthy. <laughs> it's not helpful. No,
1: it's just so human. It's just so human. And yeah, I, you know. I, there's one actor in particular who I won't just say, but it's really hard for me to be happy for them. And then I'll take active things and like bless his life and really try to generate the opposite of that. Cause I don't know what, what to do with those feelings of jealousy and envy. I just think, you know, there's a lower column vibrations of the human existence Mm. and they're so human. And ultimately I think the best we can do is just, feel them and just observe them like you would a little three-year-old running around a a room being an idiot. You know, it's like, yeah. but they don't go away quickly. And and sometimes they're clues that basically that person is doing what you want to do. And it can really solidify how important something is to you.
0: That is true. You can use it as fire. You can use it as a way to spur you on and be proactive and go towards something. That's absolutely true. But but boy man it's it's hard it's hard fuel it's fuel that can burn you know it's fuel <laughs> Yeah 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 <laughs> Anyway I just wanted to reflect back and kind of a similar like vulnerability that it was really sweet to hear you say that and so that's very nice So tell me where you go from there you were about to start saying what this yeah. means to you
1: Well I actually I came across a um there's a Instagram woman named the holistic psychologist I think I was just looking at my feed today and she had something that said some signs of the dark night of the soul and it really rung true. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to list them because I think it's, it's pretty powerful and it's very much what is going on. I love it. So there are five and I'll be try to be as quick as possible, but I think you'll like it. Some signs of the dark night of the soul. You question all you've been told on what it is to be successful, happy and fulfilled. Number two, You have a calling to spend more time alone. Number three, you're aware of your own conditioning and that your personality, quote unquote, isn't actually you. Number four, you now clearly see that people mostly connect through complaining, venting and judging others. And that makes you feel drained. Number five, you've become aware of how your thoughts and ego are causing your suffering. And that change begins within, and I think that's about as succinct a analysis of what I've been feeling for a long time. Mm. And you know, really, in bringing it to God, it feels like I've probably listened to 150 hours of Ram Dass's uh, podcasts, and you can look them up or explain it to your listeners. But he basically brought a lot of the eastern hindu mysticism to the west and made it very palatable and and i think just beautiful but anyway i am deep within that world of kind of seeking answers and meditating like crazy studying the masters of consciousness every book i read is about that stuff and i'm just kind of absolutely engulfed in only that, really, and selling bathrobes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they feel like they
1: thread together perfectly. <laughs> I, I yeah, like but, the
0: idea of listening to Ram Dass in your, in
1: your bathrobe and reading uh, in your bathrobe. Well, I, it's so sad, but our it's so sad. The irony is <laughs> that, that our motto for our bathrobe is do less, be more, which is like straight out of Ram Dass' podcast. And I'm like, I pilfered it to sling bathrobes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! It's like, but, but but ultimately, those are the questions that I'm sort of obsessed with: is how do you, how do you merge this thing that seems to be the truth, which is that desire and and sort of capitalist hungriness and trying to keep moving forward and and build and build and build is the root of suffering. How do you merge that? How do you function in the world while not giving that gotta move ahead ethos power? It's a really hard thing. I think very deeply of like, what does my life look like if I'm only operating from the heart center? You know, those moments where we feel so connected to the world and blissed out. And but if you open yourself up to the suffering that's going on, you'll just be a puddle. So it's like how do you function in a way where your heart's open and you're, you're leading from that place, but also like put food on the table and all those things. And it's a really hard balance that I have no answers for your listeners, but it is something that I sort of spend all my time thinking about. Oh, that's
0: really beautiful, man. (laughs) Do
1: you think about those things? I mean, is that like, I, I honestly, I I know you don't like to talk too much of these things, but I, I genuinely like to know what what are your, I guess, less material moments about? Do you talk to God? Do you, you pray? Are, are you involved with Jesus? or uh, What is your deal?
0: Yeah, man, it's really interesting because I don't talk a lot on my own show. It does not surprise me as someone who had an impulse to start a podcast about this, that you would be the one to kind of start to <laughs> essentially make me talk more in my podcast <laughs> than you are you know, everybody has this really long journey, right? My journey is yeah. di- starts differently than yours because I was a very devout young child. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I, in first grade, was asked to bring like a plain white shirt and we had watercolors and one of our assignments or projects of a first grader's life was to draw on this white shirt what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I drew a priest. So as a very wow. young child, I had some impulse towards... I often put a wink on it and say, look, I mean, I also maybe just wanted to be the center of attention. I also maybe just wanted to be on stage. Yeah. But clearly, I've always had an impulse towards trying to understand why I have this emotional resonance with the idea of God. A big part of this podcast for me is re-navigating a healthy negotiation between the religious and the non-religious. Yes. I spent a long time, probably five or six years, over the last seven or eight years, defining myself as an atheist, reading a lot of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. YouTube wormholes of Christopher Hitchens is just lovely.
0: Yeah. He's an amazing powerhouse to listen to. And it was incredibly thrilling for me to just have people so brazenly distribute cold, hard science, hard rationality about the world. Yeah. I will say that I began to feel like there was an emotional component that although I think Christopher Hitchens is aware of, he doesn't talk much about. Yeah. He's aware of it. He has this beautiful book called um, The Portable Atheist, which I really enjoy. It's essentially one of the things he did, I think, before. he, I think it was after he was diagnosed and kind of knew that he was terminal. He called together all these essays in a chronological format, starting with some Greek scientists, early atomists and things like that, I think is what they were called at the time. Okay. And then it kind of progresses over the last 2000 years up to modern atheist thinkers today. And it ranges, you know, you have Einstein in there and you have Spinoza in there and you have all kinds of people. And then you have just literature. You have people like George Eliot and people in there. And so he writes a little introductory blurb on each of these essays and and begins to talk about that stuff. And I I go into that basically just to say that there is beauty in there. There is wonder in atheism. I, I feel very strongly that the word atheist, which was a bad word when I was growing up, it was kind of synonymous with the devil. I found it to be a place where I began to see wonder in science and in rationality. But I also just, to be very honest, like, when I feel the most connected, like the most beautiful resonance I tend to find, I can get this when I go to Joshua Tree or something and I look up at the stars. Mm -hmm. But it, it often tends to be at moments like the one you and I just shared 10 minutes ago. Yeah. It tends to be for me that I want to feel like there is a communion between people where Mm -hmm. there's an honesty and a vulnerability, an openness to trying to understand and space to allow someone to say, this hurt a little bit, but I love you. or I I feel very differently from you. My experience of life is very different from yours, but I see why yours is a loving way of living, even though it's different. Mm -hmm. I have um, not done as much Ram Dass researches you. I mean, I know Ram Dass and some of what he writes. I, I've, you know, I, I read the Tao Te Ching for years and years and Mm -hmm. that kind of non-being, which I believe those are strong components of the, the meditative lifestyle. I don't live a meditative lifestyle right now. I find, frankly, particularly right now during COVID-19, but also just because I have a young child, my wife and I have been struggling to find, you know, how do we create as much balance of time with all the other responsibilities. Yeah. And so I go into that stuff, I think, because I will say that I feel somewhat self-conscious because I don't have an answer either, right? I don't I don't have an answer. Yeah. But I do feel like what I'm saying is is the truth about where I'm at that ultimately I don't think I'm going to come up with any answers. Maybe someday I will. I think ultimately the end point for me seems to be to dilute the self and the adherence to any kind of self-righteousness Mm -hmm. which I define as kind of believing that I am right, Right. believing that I am right in believing a thing, or that my identity alongside this structure or organization or thought process or belief system, by diluting that as much as possible, I will be more and more universal as a soul and as a human. And that, that to me is where the God resonance lives. I don't really talk about God in a way that feels as the direct person anymore that I used to think about when I was a child, but I can say like when I traveled with some buddies, I was in Southeast Asia or when I've traveled to, basically whenever I've traveled, I find Uh like, oh yeah, this is like, this is me at my best because I'm experiencing an entirely new world. That to me feels like, oh, the diversity of life. Yeah. The amazing multiplicity of the life form of being. And so- The show comes from that place. It comes from a place where I just want to talk to people and be like, okay, what do we have in common and what don't we have in common? So man, you got me going. That's me.
1: Well, I no, you said so many beautiful things in there. Really. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and write it down, honestly, because I, a lot of it completely resonated you know, like all great articulations. It's like, you're thinking it, but they say it better. Than <laughs> you're thinking it, you know, so. That's, thanks. Uh, I, I think it was really beautiful. I, uh, I'm i totally with you. I, it's an incredibly personal thing, whatever someone's search for God is. I remember when I was thinking about the idea I mentioned of finding God and anyone and anything. And I am like you in the sense that I feel it the most in human connection. Occasionally, I'll get it out in nature. But to me, a conversation or an accident or some sort of happenstance that when you run into someone and and something comes out of it, you sort of feel like something's guiding you. But I remember I was just kind of doing research and I was like, you know, every Uber ride, i would talk to people about what they're, you know, you get into it really quickly. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. how quickly people will go there. What was extraordinary was how many people had had religious experiences you know a random does not look like an imp- on the outside an impressive human being you know driving your uber and you know has these extraordinary past life experiences where they realized that they were a king in Syria and you're like wait what yeah and the problem with it is though it's like someone talking about a dream it's like kind of inherently boring you would get him going and it was like, whoa, you really saw your dead grandmother and then someone knew that you were king in Syria randomly at a Friendly's restaurant. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and then but then you're like, you find yourself tuning out a little bit because it's just his little world. And obviously it's a huge passion about it, but it doesn't play out because everything is so personal with how everyone handles and the journey they're on. I sort of love Ram Dass's visualization that we're all, our spiritual beings, call it our subtle bodies or whatever, are these flowers and that you can't just like jam a flower open. Everyone's growing at their own rate and whatever work they do, maybe it's more sunlight, maybe it's more water, maybe it's better soil, but to think that you're the same flower as the next guy or that you have the same growth rate or you're anywhere close to the same stage. And that's a lot of the reason I get annoyed with self-help and a lot of the stuff you see on, frankly, people who don't seem all that enlightened talking and, you know, oh, if you only do this, this, and this, it all just seems pretty backward to me. One more thing that I think would be you know, interesting to discuss, this idea of labels, our brains, our intellects are constantly trying to disclassify you know, and obviously God is this unclassifiable, unknowable thing. And this word mysticism always comes up to me because I—that's what I consider myself ultimately—is a mystic. As in a whatever my five senses are showing me is clearly fraction, a minuscule fraction of what is actually going on. And to me, isn't life just more fun and mesmerizing if you open yourself up to what science can't prove, but what is undeniably around. And you know, what's cool now is that like quantum physics and super string theory and all those scientific things are starting to corroborate with you know ancient mysticism and eastern philosophy. So it's a kind of a cool moment. To me, where I am right now is this question of what would spirituality look like if it were fun, <laughs> like yeah. if it were if it were less precious, and that's kind of where my mind is at now, like, who knows whether this is true, but isn't it more fun to think that someone is guiding you? And if you just still and you kind of practice not wanting anything that all of a sudden you'll, you'll walk down the beach and run into like an old friend that you have never seen randomly. And then that conversation will lead to x and then all of a sudden you have some business idea because of that conversation and it's like this river running downstream from the source and if you just get quiet enough and kind of flow in a non-desired way as much as you can things start to just get so fun and weird david it's a beautiful
0: point to jump off you've set us up once again for what the third section will be everybody will be right back after the break By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our last segment with David Walton. It's been such a beautiful conversation, man. It's got me lit up in some really interesting ways that I haven't been lit up in, in a while. Me too. One of the things that you kind of posited at the end was, what's down the road of a lack of preciousness about adhering to a particular belief system or framework? And the installation of more fun, I think is sort of what you said, bringing more fun into the idea of the free speculation of what's on the other side or what's around us, what's between you and the other person in front of you. And I really am into that. I've talked about drugs on this show before, especially with Will Greenberg, if anybody wants to get into that episode. (laughs) There is a freedom in that. There's an opening in that. But one of the other things that's happened to me as I've been going into it, I think one of the reasons I wanted to go into this podcast pursuit in general is that I can't deny for myself that there's something in the religious rituals that humans have cultivated in the many different cultures that we have that is really rewarding, that there is a sense of a living Truth in the practice of these rituals that can bring us to a, a state of higher understanding or a more peaceful existence, a more peaceful day to day. These are things you already yeah. sort of referenced, right, with meditation and the ancient mystics. So you're aware of this. I'm not saying this as something that you don't know. But what I am saying is there's a tension, it feels like to me. And maybe what you're saying is, and maybe what we're talking about is that it isn't a tension at all. It is that, in fact, the tension is something that we've had. It's artificial. It doesn't have to exist in this way. We can have both the ritual and the mystical freedom of an individual person's spiritual awakening all at the same Mm -hmm. time. But I think it's really easy when I was in my Christopher Hitchens times to be so bad mouthy about the structures of religions that have undeniably caused so much pain Mm -hmm. through their political dynamic of their Religious structures. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just brutal. So we don't have. Yeah. There's no reason to go down into all those stories, but we don't have to get very far to talk about. We
1: know them, yeah.
0: And yet, there is something comforting in ritual. Oh man, there is something awakening in ritual. Yeah. I wanted to go down this way because I want to, I want to feel better about connecting with the people in my life and the people I don't know who are religious and who understand these rituals you know, maybe they adhere to their religious structure in, an, in a deeply intimate way, and that's something I can't get behind, but the ritual is something I can take. I mean, one example of this is this guy, Hopper Stone, who was on my show at one point, and he's talking about the Jewish ritual of mourning a loved one's death called Kaddish. And for a year, they have these hard and fast rules about how you mourn, when you're allowed to come out of your house, putting things over your mirrors, not clipping your nails, not cutting your hair on your face. I mean, it's like intense on some levels, but in other ways, they are rules so that we can lessen the distractions of the day-to-day and properly mourn so that a year from now, we can be done mourning and we can live again. Sometimes we don't know how to mourn, and so then we end up mourning piecemeal over a decade instead of just mourning for the time that we should mourn and then moving on. And without these rituals, I'm not sure I would find that shit on my own.
1: I am so into this because I'm, you say that, and I've I've been kind of jealous of Judaism in a lot of ways throughout my life and Mm. how structured. And I was on the show about a boy and this guy, David Israel, a dear friend, was a co-EP and he would just do a a Shabbat, which is, you know, Friday, you would have a bottle of wine, light a candle, and everyone just say what they were thankful for. And it felt like this wait, Shabbat's like Thanksgiving every week. Mm-hmm. Like, why am I not doing that? In a weird way, you want to kind of potluck the rituals of every religion because there's so much pure, good juice there that you don't need to abide by the one. But it's like that morning process you described, which was beautiful, like, I would love that. I think that would actually... If I knew that existed and I'd seen it happen, I think my fear of death or the fear of my parents dying or my children dying, I think, would lessen to a degree because I would know that somehow the momentum of thousands of years of this religion that I'm a part of had me covered, you know? And I think that there's something there. So maybe in your show notes, you can tell me what to do. When someone-
0: <laughs> oh man, dude, yeah. he's, he he like points it out. I'll tell you. I mean, he's got like a book. I have another friend doing this too. And by the way, my, my executive producer on uh, trial and error, Jeff Astroff, who is also someone, he was like the third person I interviewed on this show and it was through him that uh-huh. I actually started this show. Deeply beautiful, lovely man, very religious Jewish man. And, I've been to five of his Shabbats at his house. It's such a beautiful, it's a beautiful ritual. And yeah, it's it extraordinary. Is. There are things to take and things to learn. and
1: uh, It's weird you're talking like this. I'm just having this thought of how envy can be destructive when it's this competitive thing of, oh, that guy's got it and I don't. But in a weird way, I have this envy of certain rituals and I don't think they should be ignored. I think that that is is clear a clue as to what, you can apply to your own life. I mean, there's no reason that I've got a seven and a six-year-old. You know, we don't pray before meals. I've thought about, like, you know, what I would say. There's a weird embarrassment I have if I would to say, like, you know, okay, holy mother, we thank you for our food. Like, my kids would look at me like side eye like, what is dad talking mm-hmm. about? In a weird way, I feel like I'm doing them a disservice by not having more ritual in our family life. And I think... In a weird way, I want a ritual coach who can just, what do you like about Judaism? What do you like about Hinduism? What do you like about Islam? And what do you like about Taoist thought and Buddhism? And let's make a nice, big, neat pie of all these things that really you're drawn to and then start applying them. I don't need that label of a religion, but I do, like you, really respect and admire the power of those rituals.
0: Yeah, man. And I also think that from my personal perspective, this is just my journey, I would be Mm -hmm. a disservice to, I think I'm in this reconciliation with how much the Bible meant to me, how much Jesus meant to me as a child and how mentally I don't, it doesn't light me up the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I have this, I'm in a pursuit of trying to understand how to explain that to my son. (laughs) <laughs> what yeah. his experience was for me so that he can take it as best he can and move his journey on in the future. But I feel like it's a disservice for him not to be aware, even on some basic levels, that just like so much art and literature has been dominated by Christian thought for a thousand years. Yeah, it was impossible to avoid it. that many of the greatest artists were commissioned by Christian kings or yeah or the Pope himself. And what does it mean that that was the case for so long, that the world has existed in this way for so long? It feels like a disservice for him not to be educated well enough in that. And yet for me to be able to educate him, I have to to get over myself. I have to get over some of the things that were my own hangups about this so that I can be fair about what is beautiful about this and what are the struggles I have with it. It's so complicated
1: though, yeah it really is I think I've struggled with the same question because I want them to know because at the end of the day if you just take what Jesus said for the most part like if you just look at you know those Bibles that have the red words or what he's actually saying oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, you, and you ignore the rest the man was clearly lit and yes. there's so much good you know there's so much beauty in what he's saying and probably the most which is the golden rule which is shared, honestly, by everybody. You know, I'm not a theologian. I really don't know a ton. I I will say that I want my kids to know about Jesus. I don't feel comfortable with them thinking that he is the only, you know, lit man ever to live, that he's the one. And that's, I think, probably me putting my own belief on them. If they want to think that, fine. But, like, my personal belief is that Sure, he was the son of God, but there's been other son of gods that have walked the land, and there are probably some right here, or maybe we're all just the son of God, and we're just, if hierarchy is a natural law of the universe, meaning there are apex predators, and lower predators, no two humans are alike, no two personalities are alike, there's just a hierarchy to the world, it stands to reason that there's spiritual hierarchy and that there's certain people that are put on this earth who are disconnected on some level, to higher levels of consciousness. And if that's the case, damn, I mean, Jesus was as connected as it gets. To me, it just doesn't mean that he was the only one, that's all. But yeah. I believe that he was a lit man and operating from an incredible place. And I, for the most part, feel like all the bad that came out of it was just humans in all their fallibility effing up his words.
0: Yeah, I think I feel in many ways I think that resonates with me. I'm gonna tell you something that I don't really know. I don't think that there's a lot beyond this, but I'm just gonna tell you something that came to me as we were talking about this. One One thought I'll have sometimes that I think is, to me feels why some of Jesus's thought was sort of, is still sort of beautifully radical is there are a lot of homeless people in Los Angeles. This is not something that people are unaware of. And I've lived right in the thick of that. My wife and I, When we met each other, she was living downtown. We moved to another place downtown. We were right next to Skid Row all the time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Probably more impactfully, there's a gentleman that sleeps on the corner near where I live, where I've lived these last few years. He's there pretty often. And he's barefoot and his feet are filthy. And now think about Taking a bucket of soapy water and kneeling next to that man and washing that man's feet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like sometimes I think about that as I'm walking by him, and I. Was, and have you done it? No, I haven't done it. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I I don't I don't have the guts. <laughs> it's
1: just like a. No, I know. It's so I, I radical. I'm with you. I, it's so I, I, radical. I don't either. It is so radical, but I I would if I could. Oh man, if I could, and I said, I'm talking to myself, but if I could just take this moment to tell you that if you do that, I will send you five free roads. <laughs> no, oh, no, God, I, I that's I, the best. I mean it though. I, I, it makes me want to cry a little bit because it I. Makes me
0: want to cry telling you.
1: I think that if you did it, it would change your life. You would have a profound impact on him your connection to this man that you grew up worshiping, I think it would be probably one of the biggest moments of your life, not to get your expectations out of control.
0: I mean, not like you needed to pump it any more than the five robes. I
1: mean, geez. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I I want to tell you, whatever you do, I think you should do it. And please call me after you do it so we can just talk about what that felt like for you. Not in any way, but I think about this all the time about, we can talk all we want, but what is living in that service, living with that heart and living with the words that that man lived by. And boy, I I just think I would just love for you to do it. Five robes coming your way.
0: Oh, buddy. That's uh, how sensuous of you. Five, one robe for each of my senses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a beautiful, it's beautiful, man. This is a beautiful conversation. And i never shared that before. It's just one of those thoughts. Uh, dude,
1: that gave me goosebumps. You saying that gave me goosebumps for what it's worth. Yeah. And it's not in that, and I hesitate because I, and this is the problem with everyone advertising how they help people. Yeah. It is so annoying. You're doing community service to get into college or you're doing community service for X, Y, and Z. There's an anonymity. If you were to do that, for example, and not tell anyone. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's something, I don't know. That's what I struggle with is the, is like who's quietly doing it versus like who's doing it on Instagram. For sure,
0: man. And you lit me up with something else, which is just talking about people on the margins. The person that's on that's on the show right before yours is a teacher of mine. He was a priest and you know, he left the priesthood and married, had a couple of kids. He was he was the director of the study abroad program for this service learning wing where you go down to the Dominican Republic. And it was, I went to a Jesuit university. So I went to a Catholic university and this is, we were praying down there. We had religious retreats and things. It wasn't the dominating force of that trip. The dominating force was learning to be educated by what he calls the people living on the margins or people living in poverty. And it was totally defining for my life. And I've often wondered, and I wondered at the time, I went on that study abroad to try to figure out, am I really supposed to be a fucking actor? Like, this feels so ridiculous. I'm about to go to Hollywood. Like, maybe I should be doing service somewhere. Yeah. Now, 20 years later, I'm trying to, be true to that person and ask myself, what, the fu- what is it that I fucking care about? Like, what is it that I really love? Because I, sometimes I feel like I've done a good job of serving that. Sometimes I've been able to uphold that energy and serve people who I feel like are in more need. But many times I haven't. And I want my life to be more focused on that. And I think that that's one of the things that stays with me about the education I was raised with, which was predominantly Catholic. We can argue about what Catholicism was or if these ideas are actually just Renaissance ideas and they're ideas that have made it into the Catholic faith because of, I very firmly believe that these are human ideas, that Jesus was a human, that these are ideas that are a part of humanity's growth, that ethics and morals didn't end with Jesus, Jesus didn't have the final say, but we can talk about what was beautiful about the guy and what ideas come from this time and why those ideas were so powerful that they have dominated so much of the world culture for the last 2000 years, But that's a much longer, we need another hour, but. Yeah, we need
1: much more time, but I, I have the exact same battle that you do, which is, I know it's about service. You can't have every single enlightened being ever to roll through earth saying that we're all one and it's about loving your neighbor and doing unto others as you want them to do unto you and being kind and everyone is saying that. And my problem is that like, Daddy needs to make a living. Yeah, man. And daddy needs to put food on the table. And and I will say this, because I've studied a lot of Hinduism and there's the idea of householding, there's people in India who are, you know, never gonna have kids and are just gonna be kind of the, the religious folks, for lack of a better word. But a householder, the respect given to a householder is so intense because it is so intense and they know that you can't go down that road if you need to take care of children and a wife you can do it but it's sort of you go through this household the ritual of the householding phase Mm. you know grow your kids and then once they're autonomous great apes Going about their business, and you're done for the most part. You're still going to worry about them, but let's say they're 22 and they're out of college. Then, the householders have been through so much, and they have so much built up, sort of, I call it spiritual energy. That then that final chapter of their life, or that those years, are then spent doing the work. And that I think is where I take solace. Often is, okay, I can't go wash feet all day right now because, you know, my kids would starve. So let's just put a bookmark in that, work on myself when I have the time, go deep, quiet down, figure out what my heart is, try to shed the baggage I have. And when the time has come where my kids are grown and and it's just me and my wife with all the time in the world and I don't need to make as much money anymore and I can really simplify my life, then get down to the work. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but that's, what I, that's sort of where I land at this moment. It
0: definitely does, man. You know, another thing I struggle with is research has proven that you need to make money, but you don't need to make an enormous amount of money. Mm-mm. You just need a certain amount of you know, living just above what it takes to fulfill all your basic needs. And then beyond that, money doesn't really give us much more genuine happiness. And so I try, I'm trying to live in that way, but it's hard in this business to not feel competitive. It's hard in this business to have your ego outside of the day-to-day, because there's so much day-to-day. There are so many auditions. There are so many moments to be vulnerable, to be exposed. So many lottery tickets you could get. Yeah. And so that interplay is definitely something I'm struggling with in my life. How to calm and to stay inside this thing that I clearly love, acting, the communing, the connection, with someone else in that art form is something that you and I clearly both love. But it's also, it can't be the defining elements of my life. And so I like very much, you know, I think about what you said, what will be the last phase of my life? What will be the last 20 years? If I knock on wood, of course, I get the 40 years I'm I'm planning for, you know, if I get the 40 years, if I get to 80, you know? If I get the 40 years I'm planning for, I get 20 more to raise my child and get him gone. And then 20 to, with my wife and I to, to sit back and think, you know, that, that sounds good. But also, you know, I don't want to live 20 years imbalanced. You know, I don't think you and I are saying yeah. that either. I don't want to do the next, I won't be a good dad. So I got to figure out how to be a good dad too.
1: Yeah, I think I, I'm with you. And we least I at the ceiling going, oh, I lost my temper with them there. And I was just so yeah. disconnected there and we, you know, we have these high standards, I think, uh, because we realize that each and every moment is this gift. And I constantly think about death. So I'm like, oh, my kid could, you know, if I feel really disconnected from my kids, I'm like, they will die. They will die. They will die. And then I'll start yeah. like smelling their head. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, though, I get and you. And they'll man. be
1: like, you creepy, uh, <laughs> creepy dad. But I will, yeah. I, I have to say this because it, you were talking about the acting thing. And I use this is my best metaphor for what we do. And I, I have to say, I live in Maine on the ocean and I can see surfers right now. And there's this beautiful calm water and they're, they're actually catching beautiful waves. But I, I think that is very similar to what acting is because a lot of times the, the effort you put in, you really don't get out. It's not like uh, you're in private equity and if you do 11 hours you know, at the desk, you're gonna get X, Y, and Z there is a flow thing to acting and there's just a staying in shape, which is like staying in paddle shape. But there is a kind of like, Hey, just be in a state of mind where you can be rested and ready for whatever wave. And you know, you can't quite tell if the wave's going to run for 20 seconds or if it's going to just close out and bash you to the ground. But I, I do think the waves and acting work and waves are very similar for whatever that's worth that, that I think there's a similar state of mind that needs to be nurtured
0: David I can't say enough about how beautiful this conversation was
1: yeah me too was, I got a lot of energy going into my kids dinner I think they're having Andy's mac and cheese I'm oh. gonna be spooning it like a madman <laughs> yeah man
0: oh and I'm gonna imagine you doing it nude barely covered by a gorgeous robe <laughs> you're exactly right here. David thank you so much man Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Way, my, business, my, my business robe.
1: partners, are, my business partners are listening right now and just sweating cake. <laughs> <don't want> <laughs>
0: yeah, everybody's going to be—they're going to be like reporting on the news. Like, there's just a radical movement of people washing people's feet across the nation. each. no, robes. how's this? How's this?
1: <laughs> now gonna, bankrupt. Well, you, you can edit this, but if you do that, I will. Two robes—a robe for you and a robe for the man that you wash mm. the, the, the feet of. There we go. Mm, and I, think that, I think that. I think that's
0: that's that's pure that's fair that's fair yeah.